This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me and my brother, Chris. In this episode, we play the vaccination game. This is the time of COVID-19, but contrary to what you may have heard from commercials or by politicians, these times are not unprecedented. Plagues have been wreaking death upon humanity for our entire history. They've been around the whole time causing gruesome scenes as bodies stacked as high as buildings in ancient Rome and wrenching acts of desperation like child sacrifice in medieval Europe. Throughout history, the great viruses like influenza and smallpox would mutate and evolve around us, and the great bacteria like Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that caused the Black Death, would simply lay in wait. Then in 1796, English physician Edward Jenner realized that farmers with milk cows weren't getting smallpox. Sure, they'd get the less deadly disease called cowpox, but they wouldn't get the virus that had already killed millions. So Jenner started inoculating people with cowpox, and the vaccine was born. Now, hundreds of years later, is it possible to use vaccines to completely eradicate diseases? How deadly does the disease have to be? Can we use math to predict or even end the cycle of COVID, flu, measles, or any disease at all? Is it even possible? And welcome to another episode of the Game Theory Podcast. I'm Nick and Chris. It snowed in North Carolina for the first time in what feels like forever. The state was not prepared in any way, shape, or form. How is it where you are? Nick, it snowed in Washington as well. And unsurprisingly, the capital of the three world was also not prepared for this predictable recurring weather event. Uh, the government <laughs> shut down twice in the span of a week. Uh, wait, twice, like the government of the United States was just like, hey, we're yeah. good. Yeah, they said, you know what, everybody, don't worry about it. We're probably fine. We're probably fine. Oh, well, that's good. That's what that's what you love to hear. Um, so we have some news, sort of. We have some sort of news. We had an emergency game theory podcast. We were going to take a couple weeks off at the beginning of the year, but then we couldn't because there was a real-life prisoner's dilemma in the National Football League, Chris, and what ended up happening was everybody saw it, and we were first. What can I say? Yeah, it, it, it was awesome. You called it. I got the text. Couldn't believe it. I never thought I'd see the phrase emergency math used in any kind of setting, Uh, but you were right. So on the show, we talked about this bizarre scenario where two NFL teams, if they cooperated with each other to tie the game, could both make it into the playoffs and both benefit. Uh, That's not what happened, though. No, no. So what happened was far more interesting. They played naturally, and what naturally happened was the Chargers were down big, and then they tied it literally on the last play of the game. And then instead of going for two... Or they had to go for two, so they had to get it so that they could tie. Because if they had gone for one, they would have lost by one. Then they get into overtime. And then the way the NFL overtime rules work uh, doesn't really matter. But they each kicked a field goal. So here we are again. The Raiders are on their second possession of overtime with like a minute left. And everyone's looking around like, holy shit. Like, there's going to be a tie. Like, and it happened naturally. Everybody who was watching the game was like, this this clearly wasn't a situation where anybody's tanking. Like, this is going to happen. This could actually happen. On third down and four with about 49 seconds left to go, and just on, on the fringe of field goal range, like just too far away, like just a little too far away to even attempt it. It'd be too risky. 
the Raiders were there and they were they were at the line of scrimmage and they looked like they were just going to hand it off up the middle or run like a little slant or something. The Chargers called timeout. And when they called timeout, that did something very important that violated the trust of game theory. At that point, it made the Raiders think that the Chargers were going to try to get the ball back and try to win at the very end. Then the Raiders were like, uh-oh, we better run a better play and we, we better like you know, run like a tricky little run play so we can get this yardage. They did. They got 15 yards. They ended up winning as time expired. In the postgame, the quarterback of the Raiders and the head coach of the Raiders were like, yeah, actually, we were totally chill just running out the clock. We were not interested in trying to get 15 more yards. <laughs> yeah, re- really amazing. So they, the, the, the Chargers played themselves out of what would have been a mutually cooperative scenario that would have screwed the Steelers out of the playoffs because what are the odds of two teams tying being the only obstacle between you and a postseason. So Big Ben got to end his career uh, with a whimper, definitely not with a bang, uh, losing to uh, Mahomes and the Chiefs. Uh, But it's because the Chargers uh, double-crossed themselves with the game theory, and they should have listened to our podcast. Yeah, they did it. They did it themselves. I mean, I don't know what else to say. So what ended up happening was the entire internet was like, oh my God, uh, Prisoner's Dilemma. And then we hear some very famous YouTubers were on it. Prisoner's Dilemma was one of the trends recommended for you on Twitter for me at that time. And I was like, ha ha, ha. We all learned stuff in high school, but you should subscribe to the podcast. The blog was the most read blog we've ever gotten. Um, not quite a thousand people, but pretty close. Everybody on Twitter and Reddit were pretty interested in what we had to say. There were no negative comments. So no, oh, nobody really? in, nobody talking shit on us, which is... So the filter is working. <laughs> yes, exactly. The filter, which is just uh, some poor kid that we pay to get rid of all those bad things that people that people say about it. So Chris, this is a, what I found. And we're going to talk about, we're going to segue. This is what they call a segue in the biz. I didn't say it would be smooth. I said it would happen. It became... (laughs) Speaking of bad transitions, let's talk about the vaccine rollout. Yeah, let's talk about the vaccine rollout. So today's episode is about various game theory concepts in vaccines and population immunity and also various parts of dealing with pandemics and epidemics. So what happened in the Raiders-Chargers game was something, it started as a prisoner's dilemma, but then as the game got closer and closer to a natural tie, which was crazy, it became something called the tragedy of the commons. And the tragedy of the commons is a very interesting situation. We've talked about this before, we just haven't given it a name. The idea of a tragedy of the commons, Chris, is when you think about yourself more than you think about everybody else, and therefore not only do you screw everybody else, but you also screw yourself. Yeah, so... uh well, for that for that last little bit, uh, typically you have to subscribe to the premium channel uh, to <laughs> yeah. get a demonstration of what that's like. Yes. When you say tragedy of the commons, I, I feel like that's like a term you would hear to describe like Les Miserables. Yes. Or like some kind of tragic medieval or 19th century, you know, peasant lifestyle thing where like, oh, the commons can't scrape by but on scraps from the table and it is it does sound like something that you were assigned to read in high school Mm -hmm. yeah so this tragedy of the commons is what well what's the there's a formal definition like this is a real game theory concept right i mean this isn't just something that you just pulled out of your rear end right it's not the same thing as certain dilemmas and problems but it is it's not well it's not as common as those things but a tragedy of the commons is sort of a result of game theory things like a prisoner's dilemma it occurs when quote individuals acting in their own self-interest deplete commonly held resources leading to a worse outcome uh, than if they had cooperated and worse outcome for them. And like, this is just for the player, not necessarily for other players, for you. A great example of this is as we kind of transition to the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, 
a great example is the toilet paper scare that happened at the beginning. Now, you know oh, yeah. that if that you're going to need toilet paper because that's how life works, but you're scared about there not being any toilet paper, so you deplete the resources of everybody, and therefore, nobody can have any toilet paper, but it's worse than that. It's sort of like um, a good example on the internet is oil. If you take all the oil and then nobody else has any oil, then there's no need for oil, and the price of oil goes down, and now all of a sudden you just have all this oil. Um, yeah, this this kind of reminds me of something we talked about on a previous episode when we were discussing DoorDash and, and the delivery apps. Yeah. The The point there was that the common resource that they had was the, the, the drivers have the ability to turn down the orders that come in. And as they turn down more and more, the price goes higher and higher. And so each driver actually ends up making more money if they all collectively band together and turn down the prices until they reach a certain point. The problem is every driver knows every other driver is doing that. They're right. voluntarily giving away potential money to somebody else. And so every individual driver has a different incentive. They're incentivized to actually take from this communal pot without going along with everybody else. And so, yeah, in that situation, it's a tragedy of the common. That's, that's a perfect phrase to describe this competing incentives resulting in a suboptimal outcome for everybody involved. Right. Another good example would be our Black Friday episode, of course, where all of a sudden there's this cycle of like, we have to open earlier and earlier and earlier. And if we don't, they will. And like, it just becomes this mess. So this is what happened at the end of the Chargers Raiders game, where it started as a prisoner's dilemma, where you, the only thing to do is to act selfish. But then at the end, the win, the playoffs became the common resource. And by the Chargers, even if they weren't, and they said after the game that they were taking a timeout so that they could get the ball back and they could take a need it. They were trying to take control of cooperating. And by do that, by doing that, they signaled Perhaps the Raiders at that point, they're like, oh, well, they're not cooperating, so we have to try to win. The common resource in this situation is the playoffs. And by acting selfishly, by wanting control that badly, the Raiders screwed them, or excuse me, the Chargers screwed themselves. So instead of just chilling out and not depleting the resources and allowing the game to happen naturally, then uh, this happened. Yeah. So fascinating scenario played out in the NFL. And it sounds like this applies across the board. Does that also include to vaccines, specifically with the COVID-19 rollout, but with immunization in general? And it, it, we found out that it does. Before we get to that, just remind, remind everyone that Spotify, apparently you can watch this episode on Spotify. You can, of course, watch it on our YouTube channel, which has probably a grand total of about 40 views and about five or six subscribers. But you can look at our faces if you'd like to. I don't know why you'd want to do that. Or you can do it right on Spotify. Uh, also, we Chris, cannot guarantee immunization from any known diseases, although it seems like you should be able to for yeah, that kind of yeah. price. And we also do not take uh, any sort of responsibility for whatever disease you should incur by looking at our faces. That's right. Um, Spotify also does five, does five star ratings now, and we would really appreciate a five star rating for anybody. If you leave a five star rating and review an Apple, we will read your comments probably depending on what they are. Spotify also, also, also has uh, a, a comment thread section. So if you want to do a discussion, we'll leave a, the, the thread open with a prompt and you can just get mad at us and do whatever you want. So we really appreciate that. Okay, so let's get into the vaccine situation. So of course, everybody's like, how can we increase uptake of, of vaccinations? And all the good journalists out there and all the good researchers were like, oh, game theory. All the mathematicians and doctors sitting around in their houses like, I understand that this is probably has to do with economic theory and, and behavioral economics. The New York Times, of course, leads the way in this. Yeah, they, they always do. I mean, it, it is the, the paper of record. I mean, regardless of what you want to say about the mm. opinions section. Uh, <laughs> True. So just, just real quick, just to get everybody on the same page here, the reason that the vaccine is such a big deal in situations like this, it has to do with, I mean, what's the fundamental biological problem that we face 
in the case of widespread disease or an epidemic or pandemic. The fundamental problem that we have with COVID-19 is that the virus that caused the disease, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus or however you pronounce that, that virus didn't really exist until a couple of years ago in 2019. And so nobody on earth had antibodies to it. And that's not true for every other virus that we normally interact with, like the flu sure. virus or the rhinovirus, you know, what, whatever the case is, our bodies have actually adapted to where, you know, generally speaking, we can kind of fight that off, but our immune system just didn't have the tools necessary. And so the point of a vaccine would be to give it the tools that it requires to fight off the disease and survive once you come into contact with it, as opposed to, you know, what tragically has happened across the globe uh, where people have been unable to do that for years. Yeah, and I mean, we see the same thing. Whenever there's something new or something novel or whatever, this is true. And, and this is a weird stickler point for me. This is why, this is like a, an aside, this is why I hate like snowflake and cancel cultures because every now and then there is something that is a, an incredibly racist microaggression that is happening, but it gets whitewashed with all the other ones. For me as a journalist, it is incredibly important to understand that it's frankly a little racist. It's super racist and it's definitely homophobic and it's factually incorrect to refer to this pandemic as the pandemic, although contextually you and I understand that what we're talking about is COVID-19. However, we are still in the midst of the third deadliest known pandemic or plague of all time, which is HIV and AIDS, to which nobody had immunity either, which is the same thing. When that gets put into the population, everyone's immune system is like, well, holy shit, this is unbelievable. I have no idea what to do here. While, while you're going off on this aside, uh, I actually want to note, uh, so the, the Economist has a podcast called The Intelligence, yes. and I was listening to that the other day, and they had a really interesting story. Apparently, syphilis is like on the rise again, Yep. and it, people thought it had largely been kind of like eradicated or swept aside by other STIs, whatever, and apparently, it's actually making a huge comeback, and one of the main reasons for that is, A, well, I guess two of the reasons for it is, A, we can detect it better, and, and we have better testing, right. and it's less taboo, uh, but B, we have found better ways of dealing with and preventing HIV, and so mm -hmm. now people are less cautious in general, and with less caution comes more syphilis, so... I thought That's that interesting kinda, because kinda we interesting. are going to we're going to talk about preventative prophylactic measures down the road about how diseases spread as part of game theory. That's coming up. But Chris, so explain to me how vaccination rollouts in the pandemic are a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. So the the basic idea behind a vaccine rollout is there is a problem and it needs to be solved. It needs to be solved by getting specific resources to groups of people in large enough numbers. The challenge with that is balancing supply, it's balancing demand, it's balancing distribution, it's managing clogged supply chain channels. It's trying to get physical stuff from point A to point B, and there's a lot of point Bs out there, and it's really challenging to do. And it's on top, layered on top of that, in addition to the logistical public health challenge, there's a very real challenge with making people choose to go to point B to actually get the item that you're trying to get to them. It's basically a matter of incentivizing people to take this public health measure that collectively helps everybody. Yes. And that's, that's sort of where we get ourselves into a weird situation. And this is, this would only be for the most part, historically, this would only be an issue if there is even the slightest act, and this is actual risk, and we're going to get into the science of this or that, but if there is any like point one to the 100,000 per 1 million people, like 
if one person can have some sort of adverse outcome from receiving a vaccine, which you can, there are allergies and various things that we can't predict. Um, but if even one can, at a certain point, that risk will mathematically outweigh the risk of the disease, no matter how deadly it is. And that has to do with one thing. And that one thing is herd immunity. So the more people that are immune and the less ridiculous the pandemic becomes or the outbreak or the epidemic or whatever, then the more likely you're to focus on the, the carrot right in front of your face, which is the fact that the vaccines could, could be hurtful. And researchers took a look at this, Chris. And, um, but yeah, do you have any, any thoughts on that idea that herd immunity is really part of this? And there's another part that we'll get into, which is the fear of adverse outcome. And but that's not the same thing as adverse outcome. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really complex thing. I mean, you, you think it's as simple as like we've made a vaccine. Now let's give everyone the vaccine. Okay, <laughs> yeah. now we're done with the pandemic. It's not that. There are a lot of really complex mathematical factors at play, like you mentioned. So herd immunity is a concept that plays into this a lot. And that has to do with you know scientifically, like biologically, what's the rate of transmission of the disease? Like how often does it get passed from one infected person to another non infected person? And matching that up with like the cluster of people that each person is in like how does each networks each individual person's network overlapping combine to describe how the disease spreads and so to offset that how can you invent something that will stem the spread of the illness from person to person in not like above a certain threshold so that it's being slowed more than it's being passed from person to person within those networks. Obviously, that's a really complex, dynamic, mathematical model. Uh, yeah, things so, change all the time. Yes, and that's, you know, math people Math people will tell you how exciting math is, which is true, I yes. suppose so. Yes. I mean, like, it can definitely be exciting. But the this has been studied before. The important thing to understand with how this was studied is that the big vaccination problem for years had been the vaccination of children because we should we need to protect the kids and I'm I'm on board with that nobody should be you know put in harm's way by their parents or by the state or by scientists like that everybody I think would agree with that and pa taxpayers like children education those things are universally important so these researchers noticed that there were less and less people getting vaccinated for major childhood illnesses think of like whooping cough and uh, MMR. Smallpox, probably. Do people get do people get immunized for smallpox? Not anymore. It's been eradicated. Oh, okay. It so I guess exist. we don't need to worry about that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, definitely. Smallpox was but like your like your hepatitis. Uh, what's the one with lockjaw? Tetanus. Tetanus. Yep, and that's back. By the way, so they noticed in uh, I think this was in Canada um, that there were people less and less people getting vaccinated. So they wrote this paper. Uh, this was written by Chris Bach and David J.K. Earn, which are cool names. You can find a link to all of this, of course, in the episode notes. And please uh, get mad at us if we don't correctly cite our source or, or link to things. This was published in something called Journal of the Proceedings of the National Academy for Sciences, which is a sweet journal. That would like it's like the minute notes, but it's a peer peer reviewed journal in Canada, I think. That is sick. Well, it's the, it's published on the. Uh, yeah, NCBI yes. website. So. Correct. Yep. So it's 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 there. The link will be in the notes. We'll give you the NCBI uh, website. So the paper, this is how it works, right? Voluntary vaccination policies. So it looks at how voluntary vaccination policies for children, for childhood illnesses, and if it was possible to use voluntary protocols to completely eradicate a disease if the perceived risk 
from the vaccine outweighs the perceived risk from the disease. And what they found was, quote, it is impossible to eradicate a disease through voluntary vaccination when individuals act according to their own interests, which means that the less and less disease that you see, the less and less likely someone's willing to take the individual risk of getting a child vaccinated, which is which is the 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 what we're seeing in, in COVID as well. Yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, so when reading through that and and looking at the conclusion they drew there, it brought to mind ideas of like risk perception and the way that we change policies to adjust for uh, threats or tragedies that happen. Uh, 9-11 came to mind as an yep. example for me. Sure. So pre 9-11, if you, if you watch like these old 90s movies like Sleepless in Seattle or You've Got Mail or whatever, it, like you can see the pre 9-11 airport culture where like you don't need a ticket to get in. You can go right up to the gate where people right. are getting on the airplane. They might have had metal detectors, but security was not a concern for anybody. <sighs> And then post 9-11, this huge, unspeakable tragedy happens because people take advantage of the system. And now the system is completely overhauled. There's all kinds of redundant security systems. People are are constantly developing new technologies, new procedures. They're adding new checks. They're adding new layers to that to make sure that that never, ever happens again. So the... The existence of this tragedy in the mind's eye of people who are making security policy drives them to shape the policy in a particular way. And that speaks of the risk perception that people have with when it comes to diseases and trying to prevent or protect themselves from getting diseases that aren't really in the public imagination anymore. And I think sometimes it's it's lost. It gets lost in in the in the psyche of the day-to-day person like well i I don't need to worry about whooping cough nobody gets whooping cough right well yeah that's because we've taken measures specifically designed to prevent you from getting whooping cough correct the system is working like the reason you don't perceive a risk is because the risk reduction system is working here right and that's that's what makes the sars and cove 2 really fascinating because it was built to corrupt humans because that baseline is not super deadly and it's not detectable so even if Say, for example, you knew that the death rate of COVID was the same as it is now, but you knew that 99% of people who got infected, infected got sick as fuck, then you would still want, you would be far more likely to want to get vaccinated. She's like, I can't miss two to nine weeks of work unless I get one of these even adverse outcomes where I'm out for months at a time if it, were, if it made you sick. But COVID doesn't do that. It only makes a small portion of people sick, which means that the perceived risk or the actual risk of vaccines gets closer and closer and closer to this Nash equilibrium of people's decision making. Right. So like, if they think it's anywhere near worse than the disease, we're finding out that the, the disease for most people is not as bad as any sort of perceived risk. And that that kind of thing is what is is making this really kind of crazy because COVID is the perfect perfect disease for this now in the united states we have our own problem which hopefully maybe could be addressed from game theory and our own problem is that people really really love their opinions and their independence and their their choice so anybody with any sort of authority whether earned or not earned uh, scientifically academically or politically telling a group of people in america what to do their baseline reaction is no yeah i i think there's a there's a healthy kind of skepticism or suspicion maybe of authority yeah. I also think there's this kind of baser human drive to not do something that somebody else tells you to do, even if you are already going to do it. Yeah. Like if you, if somebody, some stranger in the street saw you and you were waiting to like cross at the crosswalk for the sign to turn on and somebody just said, Hey, go ahead and cross the street when the sign turns on, wait until then and then do it. That'd be very confusing, be very off putting. Right. And I think a lot of people kind of give into that, desire to be defiant and have this 
just really sort of juvenile approach to I'm not going to do what you told me to do just because you told me to do it. You're not the yeah. boss of me. 100%. And, and so, I also so, oh, go ahead. How, how are we going to how are we going to overcome that with game theory? I mean, no matter how well run an experiment is, no matter how cleanly collected the data are, that's not going to convince somebody who is convinced in their own mind that they just need to be childishly defiant and don't worry about the consequences. Right. Yeah. And I think that like in America, and I subscribe to the, uh, I mean, I don't love everything that Richard Dawkins writes, but I do like his idea of memes that I've been obsessed with his idea of memes, not internet memes, not tweets that are funny that get posted on Instagram, actual memes, which are this thing that he thought that ideas are genetic and hereditary. And I think that if that were true, one hypothesis that you could ask if that were true, or like America would be theoretically founded by generation after generation after generation of people who have essentially just been calling bullshit on everything. Everybody like I don't want to be impoverished in India. I'm moving to America. It's the same exact thing as the Irish the, the century before and the English the century before. We are a country of people that have just been, you know how revolutionary, uh, LOL, it is to have shirked an, a successful monarchy. There, there were taxes and things, but it wasn't many, many other places that the, the British occupied that had a way worse than the colonies. But we're founded by a people that just are like, no, nope, I'm not doing that. And it's been successful, but when it rears its ugly head, it rears its ugly head. Okay, so did we find anything on how game theory can help us? Is it possible? Well, I think there's a catch. I think the first place to start is acknowledging exactly the conclusion that you just mentioned <sighs> uh, from the research paper, which is that you can't leave this up to individual choice. So right. if, you, if you're a public policymaker and you're trying to figure out a way to solve this horrible crisis that's thrown the country into disarray that's disrupted the pro uh, that's disrupted the way of life of everybody on the planet uh, you can't like individual your responsibility your way out of this no matter how much i like the concept of personal responsibility i think it's a bummer but this is a public problem this isn't an individual choice it's not up to individual choices this is something that affects everybody and it's precisely because of what you talked about at the top of the show with the tragedy of the commons with this competing incentives like individuals are incentivized to do one thing but the group is incentivized to do another and that tension makes it impossible for this to be a matter of like everybody just spontaneously choosing to do the right thing and solve the problem for everybody. So I think acknowledging that is step one. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I've, I've long since theorized, and I still think this is true as we're in January and people are going to start to realize what has been happening in the middle of the night. And my theory is that America, freedom of speech and religion and press are great, but the real freedom in America that people had never experienced in the world is economic freedom. And I want everyone to understand that billionaire companies don't become and stay billionaires by paying for people to do things that they don't want them to do. Mainly, if you don't have COVID vaccine, I, I think you should check the fine, fine print on your any sort of insurance policy for you and your family, including life and health insurance. And I don't think that the skyscrapers in New York are not built by people who will pay for your COVID if you haven't gotten vaccinated. And that, that's how this will be solved. That's, a, that's the American way. Everything's good old-fashioned billionaires in New York and L.A. and Texas and all that kind of thing. But a more fascinating theoretical point is coming up here in the difference between the vaccination game, which was the paper we talked about in 2004 and what we're experiencing now with COVID is that COVID is a pandemic. The vaccination game was written in a time where they're just trying to maintain the status quo of having theoretically eradicated a lot of these diseases. And, and, and that is a bigger challenge because nobody sees what measles does. And as it be became more pronounced in parts of California and New York, because people weren't getting vaccinated, it started to scare people and it went back up. But this has been a point I've been trying to communicate 
for a long time about the vaccine in a pandemic. And this is true for any sort of prophylactic uh, HIV or AIDS medication or any sort of preventative measure. The vaccine is not just the cure for the disease. Like if you're not scared of dying from the disease, that's fine. Um, More likely than not, you'll be fine. The vaccine is the cure for the pandemic, which means that the other shitty thing that we're going through not, because at the beginning, remember when the pandemic was fun, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic was fun. And we were all watching Netflix and there was just like this weird kind of enjoyable fear of what the fuck's going on out there. Or when upper middle class people were hiding in their homes while working class people were forced to make deliveries to them. Correct. Yes, that was me. But they were really great. And I tipped, I had a really well, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a, a job that paid much better than a lot of people in my neighborhood. And I tipped <sighs> aggressively. You're going to get some, some major social credit for that in the next life. A hundred percent. Can't, can't wait to give a, a, an open tab in heaven. That's what, that's really what I want. But at the beginning, when it was fun, there was this fear of this and people were kind of banded together. The amount of times I've heard we're all in this together, these unprecedented times, which, by the way, is not true. <laughs> these, <laughs> First yeah, plague in the, ever. In these uncertain times, yeah, now more than ever. And remember all the emails you got from everything you've ever bought online, like how this company's handling the pandemic? Yes. We at MyProtein see this as a communal effort to band together as humans, so buy more of our protein powder. <laughs> I just wanted to slip that in there to let everybody know I've been hitting the gym. You've been hitting the gym, yeah. I can, I I can, I can tell some some nerdy glove back there. I can see it. Okay, all right. Watch on Spotify. Nick, I think, I think you're exactly right. The the vaccine is supposed to be the thing that moves us beyond the pandemic stage, and you know, it's it's not. We're not going to get rid of the coronavirus. We're not going to get rid of the disease COVID nineteen. What we're going to do instead is equip the body with the biological resources it needs to fight off the virus. The point isn't to prevent you. It's not like a magical shield that'll prevent you from getting the disease. You know, it's it's not like a, like some kind of crazy power up that you know, makes it impossible for you to inhale virus sized particles. No, it's supposed to supply the body with the antibodies it needs to fight off foreign invaders so that it can stay safe and survive an infection and pass on a minimal amount of the virus so that it stops becoming a continual contagious like a community spread event like yeah. that's what the vaccine is supposed to be for and so i think the key is leveraging human behavior and changing people's risk calculus such that they perceive not getting the vaccine as more risky or having a lower payoff than going to get it and swallowing our pride or risking the negligible amount of uh, of harm to physical health yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I, you know, if, if, in America, we have the freedom of choice, you have the freedom of choice, and, you know, it's going to happen and, and whatever. The bigger risk to society and where the game theory part comes in is like how things, the healthcare system is taxed and how annoying this is. And it reminds me of a, a story I heard on the Aaron Sorkin TV show, uh, The Newsroom. This is a secondhand telling of a secondhand story. And it's kind of like a joke. This kid is eating paper and it's really screwing up his diet. And he won't stop eating paper. They take him to the local doctor. They take him to the regional doctor. They take him to the national doctor. They take him to the global doctor. And the global doctor looks at the kid who won't stop eating paper in the doctor's office. And then he looks at the parents and he looks at the kid who drew, they dragged him all the way to Sweden or Russia or wherever. And the doctor looks at the kid and he goes, Hey kid, if you stop eating paper, your parents will stop taking you to doctors. And that's how I feel about the pandemic. Like, you know, if you get vaccinated, we don't have to fucking talk about this ever again. 
that's true. Like the way to stop having this conversation is to do the things necessary to put it behind us. And and I think as far as influencing human behavior and changing people's risk calculus, that's a way that that policymakers can use game theory to change the odds. Uh, and you mentioned the cost that's going to be associated with this for insurance companies and, and the way the premiums are going to rise for people who choose not to take this measure of, of getting vaccinated. Uh, there are also social levers that policymakers can pull. Like, for example, as of January 15th, residents of the District of Columbia or people who want to go into public business in D.C. are required to show proof of vaccination. So if I want to go have a drink or go eat at a restaurant or right. work out at the gym like I've been doing a lot, uh-huh. I can't go into those places without showing proof of vaccine or some kind of like legitimate actual medical reason, like an like an allergy or something that prevents me from, from getting vaccinated. And so that's the social cost. It's like, okay, well, do I want to hold on to my pride and not get vaccinated? Okay, great. Then I'm going to have to figure out a different way to work out, or I'm not going to be able to enjoy my favorite meals without paying more for a delivery fee and tipping the driver. Right. Yep, exactly. And that's and that's how you can kind of shift the cost analysis. But I think a larger thing to look at here is when this is going to happen again, because the what these these two researchers in I believe Dartmouth figured out is that this is going to this will be a cycle that we'll, we're never going to get out of. That vaccines are they're like an asymptote for the math nerds. You know what an asymptote is, Chris? I do know what that is, and you're, you're referring yeah. to the 2020 paper from uh, Alina Globitz and Feng Fu. That is exactly right. Globitz and Fu they were sitting around and they were hypothesizing some stuff, and they came up with a very interesting paper, and they came up with the term a, a play on the term tragedy of the commons, calling it. I'm going to see if I can pronounce this this word correctly oscillatory tragedy of the commons because it is a cycle. So vaccines are this asymptotic, 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 whatever. Just just because I know you've forgotten what that word means, an asymptote is a mathematical construct where the, the, the value of a function gets closer and closer and closer to a specific value, but it never quite reaches that. So like my, my journey of personal improvement through lifting weights is like asymptotically approaching Perfection, a, but I'll, ne- I'll yeah, never get there because I've always quite. got that drive. I'm always hungry. Maybe Samuel L. Jackson will turn you into a, an Avenger one of these days. We'll never, we'll never really know. Not until you hit the gym. But Marvel so they, what they found, they found is like this: if, if the asymptote, the line that it's trying to cross, is Nash equilibrium, where there's herd immunity for anything, it's not going to get there. The only times throughout history where it's gotten there is when the disease is deadly and torturous and awful, or when we've cured it. And a cure is different than a vaccine because vaccine is preventative and there's a risk of that. But people taking penicillin for bacteria, that is a completely different thing. So they termed this, they coined this term, the oscillatory tragedy of the commons. I don't know if they coined it, but they used it. And the idea is that as we get closer and closer to this Nash equilibrium of herd immunity, there are going to be people at the top that realize, well, there's a one in a billion chance my kid gets an allergic response and dies. And they're like, well, at the individual level, I can't put my kid through that. Boom, it's going to go back down. So you get more cases, more fear, more vaccine, fewer cases, less fear uh, of the disease, more fear of this. I actually wrote this down. Let's see if I can. This is I wrote this sentence out. Are you ready? Oh, man, this is this better be good. <sighs> I hope it's English. Here we go. Essentially, quote. Oh, you start with myself. essentially. Okay. Essentially, that's right. Man. Going to copy paste that into the blog later. More more fear of illness and death means more compliance, means less cases and deaths, means more fear. Oh, wait, I'm going to start over. Ready? Man, this is is going great. Did you write this in one place or? You know what? In my defense, I'm legally blind. Let's put my glasses on. Bam. Now we can read. Wow. wow. Strike. Oh, the count is 0 and 1. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, more fear of illness and, and death means more compliance, less 
means less cases and deaths, means less fear of illness and death, means less compliance, means more illness and death, means more fear, and so on and so forth. So as, I mean, exactly. it, asymptote, crash, asymptote, crash. And it, we're never going to get out of it with vaccines. It can't be done unless the disease we're trying to get rid of is smallpox. But it'll never happen with COVID. Right, yeah. So, so basically, another way to phrase this is an oscillator is a thing that goes back and forth. Or like, like you remember from, uh, from one of our father's words of wisdom, uh, he described a bad situation as one in which the defecation has hit the rotary oscillator. Like, well, that's a fan. It's just a thing that goes in the same pattern over and over again. And so you're right. So it's like there's a compliance graph, like, okay, more compliance because people are afraid. Like, all right, well, that means fewer cases. And so people are less inclined to comply because there's less perception of risk. But less compliance means there's going to be more cases. And so people are going to be more worried about risk. And so it just keeps going back and forth. And the asymptote is the thing that is like the upper bound on the level of compliance. So like the, the, the compliance rate will get really close to this value and then it'll drop off and then it'll come back and it'll get close to this value and it'll drop off and you get close to this value and drop off. That asymptote is kind of the shape of the oscillatory curve. And that's like the upper threshold like that, like that's as good as we can get. Like you said, unless we cure the disease, unless we find a legitimate cure for COVID-19, that's as close as we're going to be able to get. Uh, according to the social dynamics modeling that Globitz and Fu have for us. Yeah, and they they absolutely nailed it. And it was really, it really was tough to read that because you're like, I man, I don't want people to, I don't want people to like not get vaccinated for this or that. And this is, we're talking about COVID and COVID is, of all the things that you get vaccinated for, COVID is among the safer things in terms of your likelihood of getting sick and your likelihood of death. The flu is rough. Like the flu crushed us as a population back in, in the early 19-teens. Uh, smallpox, obviously, and but they, they they found this thing for for general vaccinations. So the real bummer of this to me is that I, this is the darker thing I've been saying about the pandemic, which is this is a good warm up pandemic. Mm. There are, and this is if you want to go down a rabbit hole and just if you're one of those people that likes to watch a scary documentary or whatever, the there are the amount of bacteria out there that are just gaining straight up resistance to antibiotics compounded with the fact that antibiotics don't make money. So pharmaceutical companies that are publicly traded have no incentive to research new antibiotics. Like there, there are some OG plagues out there that will be back. And when they're back, do we have the collective ability to know how to shelter in place for years at a time? We have, we have the internet, we have zoom. We're very fortunate that we went through this in the time of Netflix, but when it comes around and it's not just some sort of supercharged cold flu thing, and it's the black death or cholera or TB are we going to be ready? And these guys would suggest that if it's deadly enough, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it, we have a weird case where we kind of want the disease to be deadly or we want there to be a higher, you know, a higher rate of people getting killed per infection. Because like, like one, one of the things that really kind of confuses me is, you know, when, when people who are resistant to the whole concept of vaccination point to the COVID survival rate and like, well, well, it's a 99% survival rate. Like, okay, well that sounds fine in a vacuum, but when you're dealing with millions and millions of people, 1% is like a ton. It's like tens, hundreds of thousands of people get sick and die from this. And so if you want to like minimize it to the percentage, that's using true information to draw an incorrect conclusion about what ought to be done. And it's, it's using a true number to incorrectly interpret the level of risk associated with the thing. And so like COVID is in that sweet spot where like it probably results in more people dying, be- even though it's less deadly yeah. because it 
artificially lowers people's sense of risk perception. And, and that paired with this like childish need to be defiant, I, I, like that, that double whammy in the, in the American psyche is just, it's a recipe for disaster. And a lot of people who are dead today, who would be alive otherwise, if it weren't the case. And then yeah. on top of all that, Nick, yep. I'm, I'm talking about this from an American perspective, man, you're right. We're so fortunate to live where we are and have the resources that we do. And yep. not everybody does. Right. Yes. And like, well, the fact that we have been able to turn down vaccines for a year now is crazy. Other countries are like still waiting in line to get their vaccines, which is, you know, a different part of American uh, psyche. And that's not what this podcast is about. But I would like a mathematician or a game theory nerd out there to do a paper on what is the equilibrium at how deadly and how sickening a disease needs to be for people to freak out. Because if it, when it was smallpox and people were like, I'm not going outside. There were, when there were plagues in, in England, the Black Death and stuff, people were killing each other. They were sacrificing babies in London in the 1600s. Dogs and horses were thought to carry the disease. They killed like tens of thousands of dogs and horses because they thought they carried the bubonic plague. It's like that, that disease was deadly enough to freak out. What is that number? That's what I want to know. And then what is the number of how sick you have to get? Because when you get the flu, you get sick. Unless you're yeah. super immunized, or you get the flu, you get sick. When you get COVID, you might have no idea. And that, that number to me is a game theory. That is a mind-blowing... That, I mean, I, I have no idea what that number is, but I bet there's a nerd out there that could figure out uh, exactly where that is. I also have one, one further comment on what you pointed out, and that is I've been coming around to this the hottest math, math take I've ever had. I have a hot math take. Maybe... Uh, uh, <sighs> do do I need to refill my Baileys here? I took... <laughs> I took Calc 2 because I wanted to prove that I could do it, which was stupid. And it Is was that because hard. you forgot that 2 comes after 1? Uh, it was very hard. I got a C- minus, and C's get degrees when That's you go good. to an SEC football school. So whatever. Uh, here's my hot take. So maybe a statistician or someone who's into trick can agree with me or disagree. I think that percentages as an idea means are the most misleading, dumbest, and most useless statistical measurement out there. 99%, it just means per 100, and there are not 100. And I know in medicine, they use per 1,000, per 10,000, per 100,000. I think that percentages in sports, in money, in voting, in everything, percentages are so misleading. I, I hate percentages. Yeah, hate it's, it. it's really a challenge that, like, it, it, it is a useful number like sure. like knowing the rate of something or knowing the proportion of something like that is useful but you're exactly right i mean it's very easy to manipulate you can very easily take actual like factual information and convince people of the wrong thing or or convince people to follow your line of thinking just as easily as somebody who believes the opposite i mean you're right like that's and that's a question like that's a larger social question of like scientific and mathematical literacy like the, the, the basic ability of people to understand what a percentage means. Like the, the data do not speak for themselves. You can't no. just look at a percentage in a vacuum and say, okay, well, that must mean X, Y, Z. No, like there, there has to be additional context. That's why, you know, statisticians like percentages, like it, 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 it's barely even a factor. I mean, yep. there are so many other statistical quantities and concepts for even basic analysis, much less the more in-depth modeling that we're talking about you know, with the papers that we've mentioned here. I, I think you're right. It's, it's just, it's really important to understand that a percentage is at best a starting point for understanding an issue and should never be the place where you stop because it does not speak for itself. 
No, and I'll give a, I'll give a sports example and I'll give a medical example. So in sports, um, quarterback oh, that we know and love and sort of worship, Josh Allen, mm-hmm. um, he famously had the worst statistics of any first-round quarterback ever drafted in college. His completion percentage was below 60%, which means that he completed only 60% of passes. Or he only completed 57, which is, I think, an NFL record low for quarterbacks drafted that highly. We think, like, <laughs> okay, well, how many were open or how many would have been open if that had been Randy Moss running the route? How many of those were throwaways? How many of those were times when he made a bad decision? Like how many were truly indicative? Was he making a bad decision and executing poorly 43% of the time? And we know now as he just played the first perfect game in NFL history in terms of offense, him and his teammates, the first one that has ever been played in NFL history we know that that percentage was probably a bit misleading. And I can think of another example medically, with, with, and this is happening with COVID. The average cost of COVID hospitalization for all people is around $12,000, and that's usually coverable for most people. However, you don't get insurance for the average cost. If you are the one per 100,000 or one per 1 million whose cost is 2.4 million over six months, that percentage that $12,000 percentage is completely useless to you because the range there is it could be worth more than any house you will ever live in, or it could be essentially overnight just to make sure your lungs work. And that average is like way toward the low end, but that, that range or the median and all these other numbers. So when you say people are obsessed with the percentages, yeah, I don't know why it is in America. Maybe it's because Ben Franklin's on the hundred dollar bill. I don't know. We're obsessed with 100 and we're obsessed with percentages. Well, it's it's an easily digestible piece of information that somebody can take away from like watching a clip on the news or reading stats in something that they don't want to think that hard about. That's what I do all the time. Don't tell my employer. <laughs> but if you're listening to this and you take one thing away from this episode, take away that you should never just let percentages be the end point for your understanding of an issue because there is always more to the story. Sure. Well, 98% of the time, there's more to the story. Uh, wait, hold on. See what I did there? There it is. There's the soundboard. I missed that. I feel like I haven't heard the soundboard. Yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, I totally forgot that it was there until just now. Also, if you made it this far and you are someone who doesn't want to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, Chris and I, are, of course, are good, warm-blooded Americans, and we understand the freedom of choice and uh, the First Amendment. For me, as someone who went to journalism school, I would let someone cut my head off for the for the the First Amendment. Absolutely, 100%. The right to talk And if we shit get to is, a million subscribers, we'll prove that. In a live cast. With dull scissors, baby. 100%. 1 million subscribers. You can do whatever you want. Okay, Chris, let's get out of here on this. Uh, recommendations. I have a, I have one and you have one. I think you're right. We're doing, you're doing podcasts this week. Well, I'm do, going more than podcasts this week. I already mentioned my favorite podcast to listen to other than this one uh-huh. and other than your other podcast Thank is you. The Intelligence by The Economist. So my recommendation this week is The Economist magazine. Uh, I'm of the opinion that this is the most balanced fair-minded and well-researched analysis that you can get of contemporary news issues. Uh, It's a weekly newspaper. They have all kinds of coverage on all kinds of topics. You name an issue and they've covered it before and they go beyond the story. It's like combining the news and Paul Harvey all into one. Uh, Really, really interesting. Uh, They're their podcast that I listen to is called the intelligence. They have a suite of others on their, uh, their uh, program economist radio. Uh, So the economist newspaper is as good as it gets in my opinion. Yeah, the Economist newspaper. I so you turned me on to the Economist and you're on speech and debate, and I love like they're they're just really good stuff. They're nerds, and when the the more the nerdier your journalists are, the more balanced they are. They they kind of remove themselves from the equation. They care about you know their hobbies or whatever. They just do a good job, which uh, I I always respect that. I think 
I've recommended this in the past, but I want to do a better job now that we are on Spotify and video. I have a book recommendation. It's back there somewhere. It is called The Big Over Easy. It's part of a two-part series by Jasper Ford. It is just preposterous. It's the most enjoyable reading experience that I've ever had in my life in terms of how much I liked reading the book. It was such a clever take on uh, true detective crime, like true crime, true detective, all of that kind of stuff. And it pointed out that maybe, you know, and we can maybe get into this a little bit with, uh, with true crime. Maybe we should do that, that it's all a big game and that selling documentaries and selling books and selling stories is more important than solving the crime. And it's, he combines nursery rhymes with true crime. He, the detective in the story, Chris runs the nursery crimes division Absolutely incredible story. Absolutely You've been talking about that book for years. Yes. Go out and buy it. Go out and read it. Yes, Jasper Ford. And it's an adult book. Like, there's adult language in there. Like, it's a grown-up book. It's a little South Parky. I, I, can, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's just about 300 pages. Just a really good book. All right, so snow is not melting here in North Carolina. Man, watching the Carolinians try to drive in this is... I hope everyone's okay. And if they are okay, I'm laughing at all the BMWs that are stuck on the highway. Literally Ooh. just buckle up. Buckle up. Like, rate, review, subscribe. we got some love. We've got a love story coming up in our future episodes. We're also going to get into cybersecurity and try to bring on a couple experts to follow up on some of the episodes we've done. Uh, Spotify, YouTube, you know the, the, the whole deal, Chris. Uh, thanks for coming out. Get your shots. And we're live with this week's episode of Game Theory. Game Theory.